Have you ever considered the importance of worship? Not from how you feel, but from how God sees it. Hi, I'm Femi Asabin, a preacher for the Church of Christ. And today, I just want us to consider our approach to worship. Because our worship to God is a serious matter, and as such, it should be approached seriously. Out of reverence to God, we should desire to worship God as He desires it, which isn't based upon our feelings or what we like, or even what we think is acceptable. It's solely based on what God revealed to His people through His Word, which is the Bible. We can't be right by God if we don't worship God right. There are a lot of people who would tell you that worship is a matter of feelings. No, worship is a matter of obedience, inclining your heart to God's will. And when you do that right, your feelings will catch up. I hope you learned something from today's sermon and it helps you to align your will with God's so that you can give him the worship he desires. Worship, when we think about worship, um, there's a lot of things that goes through people's minds. If you ask somebody in the world what is worship, they say it's a time to where I can get rejuvenated, a time to where I come and have a good time, a time to where I sing praise to God, to where I get something out of God's worship to him, where I give something to God and worship to him. So there's a lot of concepts that go with worship. But the true question is, what is the point of worship? Dare I say the point purpose of worship is for us to remember God and our relationship with him and what he has done to form us as his people. So our worship is supposed to honor God. Our worship is also informed by instructions given from God. Not what we like, not what's convenient for us, not what would attract people, but what God finds attractive, what God tells us to do, and what honors him. You see, what worship really is, is a reflection of what's in your heart. Because if you worship as God says, it just reflects that you're obedient and that you are putting your faith in the fact that God is telling you to honor him in this way and you're doing it. If you worship as what you like, It's just a reflection of the fact that I'm going to give God whatever I find pleasing and he's going to accept it. Well, he may or may not accept it. And I would not want to approach God in them terms because when we think about who it is that we're worshiping, we have to be mindful that we must have some reverence for God and understand that we are just humans and that he created us and we didn't create him. You see, it's different when we praise, honor a fellow human being. We can do things that we might like and they'll accept it because on some level they have to. So if I have a birthday party for Femi and she says she wants this type of birthday party and I give her another type of birthday party, she's going to accept it. She's going to have a good time. And eventually she's going to like it. But if I use that same approach to God, it won't work. Because what I will probably find myself doing is sitting on 
the opposite side of salvation because I didn't worship as God told me to worship him. As we think about worship and as we're going through the book of John, in the second chapter, this approach to worshiping God is highlighted. It's in this uh, pericope about when Jesus comes and he overturns the tables in the temple courts because what he says, they have turned God's house into a place of commerce. They have turned the temple to a place to where they were profiting from the selling of animals and exchanging money. Those acts within themselves were not wrong because it was necessary for people who had came great distances to Jerusalem to purchase an animal to give to God and sacrifice. It was necessary for people who were paying their temple tax to exchange the currency into one in which the temple collected. But in doing that, there were people who used this as opportunities to profit, who used this as opportunities to turn something that was helpful, beneficial for God's people to filthy lucre. And so it took away from what was supposed to be happening at this place where God is worshipped and turned it into something to where man profited. And at this time that Jesus does this is at the Passover, nearing the Jewish Passover. And if we remember the Passover, that was when God really truly identified his people and formed them and brought them out of Egypt and was going to deliver them to the promised land. It was a mighty act that God showed on behalf of his people, grace, mercy, love, deliverance combined to bring them up out of a condition of slavery, bondage, persecution, turmoil because of a promise he made to them. And what God told them to do is that every year you're supposed to worship me, remember this, in a certain specific way because this is one of the great identity markers for you as my people. And so it's at this time when they're supposed to be worshiping, honoring, remembering what God did that we have this story which we find in John 2, starting at verse 13. And at the end of the story is something interesting because John has told us that what he's trying to do is get people to believe that Jesus is the Christ and in believing they get salvation. We skipped over the uh, story of Jesus turning the water into wine. And what's interesting in there is, well, let's back up. He starts off one saying that this word was God and God was the word and that this, this word was embodied in Jesus Christ. And that there was a man named John the Baptist who was pointing people to this Jesus Christ so that they could receive this salvation. So John's message got people to believe. And then later, Jesus, he calls these disciples and then they start following him. And then he goes to this wedding ceremony and then he does something miraculous that only a few people know, but a lot of people benefit from it. Turns the water into wine. Only Jesus' disciples, his mother, and the servants know that Jesus actually turned that water into wine. And what that does there, John puts at the end of that 
story is his disciples believed him. And now we get to the story to where Jesus is going to condemn the worship at this temple because they have turned it into a marketplace. And as we read to the end of that, Jesus' act gets people to believe in him. So it's interesting that all these things that Jesus are doing is causing belief. And John's story is getting perpetuated by these acts of God in the flesh that's leading people to believe who he is so that they can get salvation. And one of the very first ones that he talks about is this context around this worship at this temple where people worship and are supposed to remember their God and who God has called them to be. John 2, starting at verse 13. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins on the money changers and overturned their tables to those who sold doves. He said, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then responded to him, what sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you are going to raise it in three days. But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was risen from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. Now, while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many people saw the signs he was performing and believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all people. He did not need any testimony about mankind, for he knew what was in each person. This Passover, a feast that lasted seven days to call people, God's people, mandate God's people to come from wherever they were to worship God, to honor God, to remember that at one point we were slaves in Egypt and God did a mighty act for us and he redeemed us. But in redeeming us, he also gave us grace. Because putting faith in him and doing what he said, putting the blood on the doorpost, saved the firstborn son from every Israelite household that had faith. And we must not never, ever forget that. So much so that God mandates, even before it happens in Exodus 12, that you're supposed to tell this story to each and every generation. That you're supposed to relive these acts each and every year that you do this so that you won't forget what I have done for you. And it's at this time when Jesus is going to the temple that instead of people remembering the grace that God has given them, they're trying to profit off 
the people that God has called to them. So they have all types of religious artifacts to sell that can be used in sacrifice to service. And it brings up a question. What is the purpose of us going to the place to worship, to remember God? Is it so that we can get over on the people that come to worship this God? Or is it so that we can remember who God called us to be and what God called us from and worship, acknowledge, and praise, and thank the God who saved us, who redeemed us? Because if we ever forget that point, then what we will do is we'll turn the place to where God has called us to remember him into whatever we want it to be. In this case, they turned it into a marketplace. Today, we see a lot of churches that have functions that are not necessarily built for praising, worshiping, honoring God. And it causes you to think, why would we ever want to take the place to where we are to remember who God called us to be as his people and turn it into something different. Now, I will not go as far as to say that you can't have a kitchen in your church. You can't have a gymnasium somewhere in the church. You can't. I'm not going to go as far as to say that you can only use this as a house of worship, but I will go on to say that when you start putting other things inside the church building, if you don't have the right heart for God, you get on a slippery slope and you could turn the place where God is worshipped into something where people take advantage of God's people Amen. in the name of God. Because who was it that was getting taken advantage of? Jews who came to the Passover. Who was taking advantage of them? Jews who had wares to sell for Passover. So we must be careful as we come to this place to remember the God who has called us here and not take advantage of the people that are coming because what we are ultimately to do is worship God. Remember what he did for us and calling us out of the world. And a lot of times, without the right heart, we turn the place to where we worship God into something else. We turn the place to where we worship God into a thing that meets our needs. So I go to church to feel good. <clears throat> Has nothing to do with worshiping God. I go to church <coughs> to get help with this, that, or the other. It has nothing to do with worshiping God. I go to church to socialize. I go to church to feel good. I go to church to for these things that have nothing to do with worshiping and honoring God. Now, are those things bad within themselves? No. no. But it takes away from the purpose of what God created worship <coughs> for. Amen. And the place to where we're to do it, it could be in somebody's home. It could be anywhere. When we take the time that we have set for worship and take the focus away from praising God, then we are not praising God. We're actually going to incur God's wrath. 
So it's important that when you worship God, you don't make it about you. And that's where a lot of the religious world has gone wrong. They say, we'll have a fish fry to raise money for the church. They say, we'll come and we praise God and we, we, we shout and we do all of this so we can feel good in the name of God. And that's not the purpose of worship. Worship is to praise God, to remember what God has called us to and what he saved us from. Because on that Passover, the very people that were saved were the ones that had faith, not just Israelites. You could have been an Israelite and didn't have faith and not put the blood on your post and you still died. And that worship was formulating of people and the formulation of that people was shown through obedience. You read the account of the Passover, what God would tell Moses to write down is not anybody could eat of this Passover meal. They must be a Jew. So if a stranger comes and they want to partake of this Passover, unless they go through the proselyte uh, process, they can't eat of it. So, if you're not baptized, you're not supposed to partake of that. I would even say if you're not baptized, you wouldn't, you're not obligated to give. If a person who is a Jew does not partake of this Passover, they are cut off from his people. You see, now that's the other side of the coin. Not just anybody can eat it but also those who are supposed to are mandated to. And if they don't partake of it, then they're cut off. So it makes you wonder today if a Christian can make it to service and they don't, what is God saying? Cut them off. Because what they have done is they have not placed their heart, their faith in what I'm calling them to and they have put things in this world above the things of heaven, and they have belittled the sacrifice, the salvation that I'm giving them for the pleasures of this world, for the comforts of life, because they don't fully understand what it is that God did through that. And so that's why it's important that God says every year when you meet together, you tell your kids, this is what God did for us. We're supposed to eat this meat with our clothes on and we're supposed to cook it in a rush and we're not supposed to have any yeast because we are remembering the fact that God did something and if we don't relive it, we don't remember, we don't perpetuate this knowledge onto the next generations, they're going to forget God. Up on the first day of the week, do this in remembrance of me. This is my body. This is my blood. We partake of the sacrifice Jesus made and we were mindful of who Jesus died for and the fact that he called us all to one. We worship God. We hear a message that is supposed to put our mind on the fact that we're God's people and we're getting salvation only because God loves us and that message needs to be informed by scripture. Amen. It doesn't have to entertain you. 
dare I say, it doesn't even have to be in a way that's not delivered boringly. The only stipulation on the message from God is its biblical accuracy. If it's biblically accurate, that's all you need. All that other stuff can get people to lose their soul because they're looking for something that's not from God. So I say that knowing that the message should be delivered in a way that perks a person's attention. The message should be delivered in a way that causes a person to want to hear, to thirst after the word. But if that message solely focuses on the individuals and not the God who that message is supposed to point them to, then that message is not doing its part. Our giving is supposed to remind us that we're trusting in God and that we're giving our resources, a portion of it, in gratitude, but also so that God's work can continue to be done. Dennis pointed out earlier, there are some things that we say collection is for that it's not necessarily for. And so we must be mindful when we say we're going to take up a collection, are we utilizing it for the proper purposes? Because we don't ever want to take the money that we allocate for the perpetuation of the gospel and use it for something that doesn't promote godliness. We don't want to just go out and buy things because the church has money. So it's, 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 it's important that we are mindful of what we do in worship. When we pray, we pray with our spirit, we pray with our mind, we focus because we understand that as we pray, we're communicating with God and we're asking God to intercede on us on behalf of what we want. But we're also asking God to formulate us, mold us and change us into who he wants us to be through this form of communication with him. Because our lives are supposed to be a prayer for God. We're supposed to be in constant communication with God, because if we're not. More likely than not, we're going to be constantly communicating with ourselves or with the world. And what happens when you start doing that? You start walking further and further away from God. And if you start praying and only praying about things that you want and start asking God to do things that are meeting your desires, you're going to turn this house into worship, into something that it's not supposed to be. You're going to turn it into a place to where I just go so that God can do for me. And I'm not informed by God and I do for God. And what's going to happen? Wrath is going to be enacted upon you from the heavenly father. Look at what Jesus does when he goes and he sees that they have turned this house of prayer, this house of worship into a marketplace. He shows anger. He runs out the animals. He turns over the tables and he condemns them because they have turned what God was calling them to, to somewhere where he can have relationship with them to something it was not supposed to be. And so we got to be careful that when we come to worship that we do what it is that God wants us to do in worship or we will be condemned because we turned it into something that God did not want it to be. 
So if we see things in worship that are not right, we must have the courage to correct it. Or the wisdom to not go to where they worship incorrectly at. So if they're worshiping and doing things that God didn't ask for, if you're not going to address it, I would say leave. Because you'll find your place and you'll find yourself in a place where God is not. And then the only person who has authority over this worship is Jesus. The Jews. Smart as they thought they were. Ask him. What sign can you show us to prove that you have the authority to do all of these things? So I ask you. If you're going to change anything in worship, what sign do you show that you have the authority to do any of these things? What was Jesus' authority? Destroy this temple and I'll build it and I'll raise it up in three days. The crucifixion was a sign of Jesus' authority over worship. So if, if Christ didn't command it, then it's not what Christ wants. And we have no authority to give it to them. So we can't say that you can be saved anyway. In the Bible, you cannot read of an altar call. In the Bible, you cannot read of a sinner's prayer, a mourner's bench, or any of those other things that people in the world say you can be saved through. In the Bible, it says if a person's to be saved, he must be baptized. No? He must repent and be baptized and must be baptized into Christ. The name of the Son, the Father, and the Holy Spirit. Because there was another baptism of John the Baptist that people were baptized in after Christ died. And that baptism didn't save because John the Baptist had no authority in the church. Nobody has authority in the church except for Christ. God gave him all authority. And so if we're going to do anything in worship, in church, it must be authorized by Jesus Christ himself. And if not, we shouldn't be doing it because we will incur Christ's wrath. And Christ's authority is derived from the fact that he died for our sins and he is the propitiation for us, between us and God. So without Christ, we have no access to God. With improper worship, we are incurring God's wrath and we are excluding ourselves from God's people or we're not being included as God's people because we haven't done what God said he once done as mandated, dictated by his son, Jesus Christ, who came and died for our sins. But how do we know what it is that Christ is telling us? It's in Scripture. And what's interesting, and in this passage, that as Jesus is doing this, the disciples are reminded of Scripture. You see, Scripture keeps reaffirming itself, reminding us of what God has done, because God is constantly working towards the same goals, which is saving a people who have faith in him. Zeal. Zeal. For your house will consume me. A passage from Psalm, I mean, yeah, Psalm 69. And when you read Psalm 69, what's interesting is 
this is a prophetic psalm about Jesus and some of the suffering that he'll do because he has put his faith in God and those people are condemning him for that. But his hope is that God is going to deliver him, save him, keep him from these wicked people. And that's our hope as well. That when we have a zeal for God, for worship, for things of a heavenly nature, we know that we'll have persecution from the world, but we'll be protected by God. We know that we might find condemnation from people who do not understand it, who question why we do what we do because they don't have faith, but we will have deliverance by God. And that's what we put our hope in. That's what we put our trust in. And that's why we don't alter anything that pertains to godliness, to worship, because if we do, then we're saying, God, I trust you just a little bit, but not enough to fully commit to you. Jesus Christ committed to the death. We are to commit to the death if we want God to really deliver us. You can't be saved by somebody if you're going to save yourself. If somebody is drowning, they can't be saved by another person if they start swimming. They have to wait for that person to come and to save them if they're to be saved by that person. If we want to get to heaven, we must understand it's not on us to save us. It's on us to be obedient and listen to the one who is going to save us. Because we don't have no heaven and hell to put ourselves in or anybody else. And so we must listen to the one who is the gatekeeper to get through the gate. So worship, we can't change it. We understand that it's solely authorized through Jesus Christ. And that his authority was demonstrated at his crucifixion, his burial, and resurrection. And that since we can't do that, we can't change nothing about worship or about salvation. But what we can work on, what we can change is our heart towards God. Because the way that we worship is an indication of if we truly trust God. Those Jews who came to the temple selling wares, selling the artifacts of worship, their heart was for money. And while it might have been convenient for those who didn't have an offering to come and purchase one, they were getting taken advantage of. But their approach to worship showed that they really didn't understand what God was calling them to. Because if they did, they would have been obedient to God's calling. They wouldn't have sold the sacrifices in such a way that Jesus condemned them. And they wouldn't have asked who gave you the authority because they would have been like the disciples and recognized that Jesus was a fulfillment of Scripture. So we will look at ourselves and we look at our approach to worshiping God. A question arises. Are we doing what we find in Scripture? Are we doing what God has asked us to do out of sincerity of heart? 
Or do we come here to check off a box? Do we come here because it makes us feel some kind of way? Do we come here just out of obligation? Or do we come here because we appreciate, understand what God has done for us, called us out of, and the salvation that we're being given only because of his son, Jesus Christ. And that causes us to worship as God wants, not as we think. Because we could do a whole lot of things in here that would probably liven the place up, attract a lot of people, but send them further and further away from God. I promise you, we put our mind together, we could find ways to pack this building every night of the year. In the name of God, but it won't be for God. It'll be for man. And so as we think about how we approach worship... We must also remember that as we focus on God, God is calling us all to unity, to oneness, to the same thing, because he wants all those who worship him to be like-minded, to find their identity in Jesus Christ. And when you think about your identity, your identity is formed by the things you do and the things you think. And if we're all doing and thinking the same way, how can worship be different at different places? It can't. Because our thoughts are supposed to be Christ's thoughts. Our actions are supposed to be led by the Holy Spirit. And when that happens, we'll be doing what God wants us to do. You see, worship is for God. And there's a passage in the Bible that says our whole life is worship. I'm switching it a little bit from congregational worship to where we go and praise God to, to this, this concept that our life is worship. And if our life is worship and God is forming us through worship, then we as individuals should all be exemplifying the same type of characteristics. So no matter where we go, people should be able to tell that we're God's people. It's almost like Peter, when he denied Jesus Christ, his tongue betrayed him. She said, you're one of them because you speak like him. And Peter had to do a whole lot to prove that he wasn't. But think about the other side of that. The way we act should cause people to identify us with Jesus Christ. And we, when we get that right, we're going to all act like each other. We're all going to worship the same. We're all going to love the same. And we're going to be on one accord. And when we come to worship, we know it's not about us. It's about the God who's unifying us. And the one who's actually going to save us, the one that we have put our hope in. And so that's why we can say, I come to worship God. I don't come for me. I come for God. Because God has given me six days. And he's constantly with me. And if I need, I could go and pray and I can ask God to beseech me on my behalf. You can, I can ask you to pray for me. I could pray for you. And I could focus my attention on myself anywhere else. But when we come here, we're reminded what God has called us from.
to the place he wants to take us. And we praise him for that. And we praise him through the methodology that he tells us. Because anything else is going to cause God to be angry with us and put us in danger of not being his people. When we believe, we'll do what's right. And Jesus, he doesn't need us to be Christ because he knows what's in each and every person's heart. But we just, we do need him as our Messiah. So as you live your life as a Christian, exemplify Christ in this world. And if people don't understand it, that's their loss. But you should be living your life in such a way that you're different and somebody who's seeking will see you and you can have conversations about why you're different. Have opportunities to present them the truth about this God who's called us apart from this world. Because there's a lot of people who are going to call people who really have a heart for God away from God through foolish, vain worship. And they're going to lose their soul because of it. We don't want to be like that. We want to teach people truth and truth only. And we want to live truth and truth only. Because that's what we're called to. So let's be mindful of the fact that Jesus has done a mighty act in going to the cross and giving us a way to praise and worship him. And let's never change that. If there's something that's to be changed, it's us. And that's why we must repent when we're baptized. Because we have to put on the mind of Christ so that we can mirror him in our lives. And we're not alone when we do that. We are given the Holy Spirit. So no matter how hard it gets, God is with you. God is helping us. We just have to have a heart for that. And that's determined, that's reflected, that's shown in how we live and especially how we worship. I'm not sure where these words leave you, but I would ask you to consider your approach to worship because what that really does is it highlights your heart for God. Do you have a heart to do just what God says? Or is your heart telling you, I got to do something else because I feel a certain way? And if you're feeling that you need to add to God's word, I would say pray. Ask God to touch your heart so that you can get over yourself so you can be filled with yourself. I'm not sure where that sermon leaves you. My prayer is that you will contemplate it and incorporate it into your Christian life. If you're not a Christian, I ask, what's stopping you? God sent his son, Jesus, to freely extend the gift of salvation to all who will follow him. To get that salvation, one must follow the example set out in scripture. The book of Acts, which details the church's beginnings and expansion, shows us biblical examples of those who were saved. A good place to look is in Acts 2. You get Peter preaching the first gospel sermon and the response of those who heard and believed his message. They repented and were baptized, which added them to the church 
Christ established. The Bible only teaches of one church. If you want to be added to it, go to your local church of Christ and tell them your desire to be washed of your sins and to live a godly life. Study your Bible, put its teachings to practice, and you will make heaven your home.